I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, David Edmonds, is a British philosopher and a distinguished research fellow at Oxford University's Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. He's the author of many books, including The Murder of Professor Schlick, Would You Kill the Fat Man, Cast Wars, A Philosophy of Discrimination, and Bobby Fischer Goes to War, How the Soviets Lost the Most Extraordinary Chess Match of All Time. He is also co-author with John Edenow of the international bestsellers Wittgenstein's Poker, the story of a 10-minute argument between two great philosophers, and co-author with Hugh Frazier of the children's book Undercover Robot. He is an ad hoc columnist for the Jewish Chronicle, a former contributing editor to Prospect Magazine, and co-host with Nigel Warburton of the popular podcast series Philosophy Bites, which has over 44 million downloads. He also runs two other blogs, Philosophy 247 and Social Science Bites. For three decades, he was a multi-award winning presenter producer at the BBC and host of The Big Idea. He remains a regular presenter on BBC Analysis. His latest book is entitled Parfit, The Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality, which is the subject of today's interview. So David, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for inviting me. That's quite a bio. I'm amazed that you have time to do this interview, so thank you. Well, I gave up the BBC job a couple of years ago. That, oh, okay. that has given me a lot more room for manoeuvre. So first of all, give us a little background about how you came to know Derek Parfit and what it was like to write his biography. It was a total delight to write his biography. As you say, I've written quite a few books, but this was the most fun of all the books I've written, I would say. How did I know him? When I was at university, I did an undergraduate degree at Oxford, and then I carried on at Oxford and did a postgraduate degree called the BPhil, which is a two-year philosophy degree. And as part of that degree, you do three papers, three sets of exams, and then you also write a dissertation. And my dissertation was on the philosophy of future people, what we owe to future people, what obligations we have to people who will exist, but are not yet born. And Derek Parfit was my supervisor. So I knew him from very way back. And then later on, I did a sort of bunch of other things. And then I came back to philosophy and did a PhD in philosophy. And my supervisor for my PhD, which was on the philosophy of discrimination, was a woman called Janet Radcliffe Richards. And she was the partner then and the future wife of Derek Parfit. So I, I am the only person to be taught by both Derek and by Janet. So I obviously I knew them both and I was in a good position to write Derek's bio. Derek died in 2017, but Janet is still, thankfully, still with us. That's a really intimate knowledge then in certain ways. And it sounds like in the course of writing the book, it became even more intimate. I imagine you must have had quite a few conversations with not just him, but all the people who knew him. I had hundreds of conversations with, I tried to track down as many people as possible who knew him. And some of them I already knew, especially from the world of philosophy. But it turned out he had another kind of world, which I knew nothing about when I began which was his kind of the younger version of Derek, which was entirely different from the later version of Derek. So I tracked down school friends from his prep school from later on, he went from a prep school in Oxford to Eton, which is the most famous prep school in the country. Then he went on to Oxford where he was an undergraduate. 
And so I tracked down people from his school and from his university days. And of course, yet yeah, many philosophers who cooperated with him in one form or another. So I probably did, I don't know, well over 200 interviews. And I imagine years and years of research and editing and collating and deciding what to include. You probably had way more material than you could use, I imagine. Well, you would think it was years and years. And in fact, I had a deadline that was going to, that, that granted me several years, but it came together extremely quickly. It was partly because it was a COVID book. It was, in a way, it was the perfect pandemic book because I was trying to interview people. Everybody was at home. So interviews were extremely easy to arrange. And I didn't have many other distractions. And in fact, I remember contacting my editor at Princeton University Press and saying, I hope you're sitting down because I've got some news for you. I'm going to deliver the manuscript a year early. And <laughs> Rob, my editor, said, normally I would indeed fall off my chair, but you are the third person this year to tell me you're going to deliver the manuscript early. And I think I was part of a more general phenomena. There were some people for whom it, life was very, of course, incredibly working life was incredibly difficult or they couldn't work or whatever but for the life of a writer there were certain sort of benefits during the covid period and i think some books were produced earlier than were otherwise expected i see that makes a lot of sense so you recognize in the book that outside philosophical circles parfit widely considered by professional philosophers to be the most important moral philosopher of the 20th century is not exactly well known but for that matter, most people would probably not be able to name any 20th century or 21st century philosopher. The subtitle of your book is A Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality. I'm wondering, is it your mission to rescue philosophy from the obscurity it finds itself in and to restore its relevance? Oh, gosh. I guess some people would regard me as a public philosopher in the sense that I'm interested in translating philosophical ideas and making them accessible to the public. I'm not sure it needs to be rescued. One of the things I discovered de literally decades ago now was that there's a huge appetite for philosophy. When I started working at the BBC, one of my early series was about, well, I did a couple of series actually about philosophy. But one in particular was involved interviews with well-known philosophers about well-known philosophers. So I would interview somebody about Kant, somebody about Hume, somebody about Wittgenstein, somebody about Nietzsche and so on. And I got an extraordinary response. At that time, I was working for the BBC World Service. So that was the part of the BBC that was broadcasting to the rest of the world. And an amazing number of people wrote to me from the far corners of the world. This was what, this was before the internet. So this involved actually them taking quite a lot of trouble. They couldn't just find my email and dash off an email. They had to buy an envelope and a stamp and find my address and my room number. And these kind of letters flooded in. So I knew way back then that there was this appetite, not just in Britain, but around the world for philosophy. So I'm not sure it needs rescuing, but it probably does. It helps to have some people who can express philosophical ideas in a way that is easily comprehensible. And that's one of the things I like to try and do. I don't know if I succeed, but it's one of the things I enjoy doing, taking philosophical ideas and trying to make them understandable by any intelligent person. 
So to paraphrase Woody Allen, you would say that the reports on the death of philosophy are greatly exaggerated. Is that the... Yes. Was that Woody Allen or Mark Twain? I think it was Mark Twain, wasn't it? That, that my, 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 oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Mark Twain. But yes, to paraphrase, I think it was Mark Twain. To paraphrase Mark Twain, yes. I, I don't think they're, I think they are exaggerated. Philosophy in the Anglo-American world doesn't have quite the same reputation it does in some parts of continental Europe. I think some philosophers in France, for example, have superstars, are intellectuals, everybody takes them very seriously. We have very few philosophers with that kind of public profile. And I think probably at the moment, there aren't many individuals who are well known to the world beyond philosophy. We don't have many philosophical superstars. And I think not just as public figures, but also, I think, as philosophical stars in the world of philosophy. So there's no obvious Wittgenstein around at the moment. There are lots of many brilliant philosophers, but nobody who stands out as somebody who we're going to look back on and say that was the most important philosopher of the late 20th century. Derek is an interesting philosopher in that he splits philosophers, I would say. So some people don't like his philosophy at all, whereas others do, in fact, say he's one of the most important moral philosophers of the past century. And some go even further and say he's one of the most important moral philosophers since John Stuart Mill. But he certainly doesn't have any public profile, in part because he didn't give any interviews. He didn't say if you'd approached him for a podcast interview like this, he definitely would have said no. He didn't write op-ed articles. He didn't give public lectures, really. He gave a few seminars and so on. So he was completely unknown to the public. And he didn't write in a way that is particularly accessible. He wrote in a very clear way, but he doesn't. he's not writing so that his ideas are comprehensible to everybody. He's writing for the philosophical community. Yes, yeah, so you might say, and this may sound a little pejorative, that he was an ivory tower philosopher. Yes. In many ways. Yes. In many ways. Yeah. He, almost literally ivory, maybe gold-gilded ivory tower. Yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. privi- privileged life and very isolated and cloistered. Very cloisters, cloistered. I say in the book that he lived his life in cloisters. He went to this prep school in Oxford called the Dragon School. He went to Eton, he went to Oxford, he went then went to Harvard on a Hartness Fellowship, he came back to Oxford, and he spends the rest of his life at a college called All Souls, which is or was unique in Oxford as being, for being just a research college and for not having any undergraduates. And it's a very beautiful college, and you know, obviously Eton is an ancient school, so he literally spent his life in cloisters. So they weren't made of ivory so he, they weren't literally ivory towers but he but definitely had a cloistered existence and not just metaphorically literally so getting back to philosophy in general for just a moment i want to quote from your book because i think that you do try to rescue philosophy at least in one paragraph <laughs> not much of the book but one paragraph you write that philosophy is an ancient discipline its problems are ancient most of the thorniest ones have been around for centuries if not millennia what can we know do we have free will what makes me the same person over time How should we understand consciousness and what is the link between mind and matter? What is beauty? What is truth? Exceptional minds have addressed these problems. Making progress has proved slow and strenuous. There are very few novel problems. So there you give a little setting for philosophy in general with that one little paragraph. Yeah. And I later go on to say that there are very few 
it is true, novel problems and that progress has been very slow. But Derek actually comes up with a few novel problems. And that in itself is a remarkable achievement. In the area of free will, for example, there are still books written about free will. There are still new articles that keep coming out about free will. But there's not a lot new to say, I think, about the problem of free will, which is how is it that humans can have free will? What does it mean to say humans can have free will? What sense can we make of the idea that the world is governed by physical laws and yet humans are not governed by these laws in some way or we're somehow free to overcome causal laws? What's the definition of freedom and what's the link between free will and moral responsibility? So those issues are not quite as old as time. (laughs) They're ancient philosophical problems. And I think there's not a lot of new progress there. Perhaps there will be progress through the natural sciences. Maybe neuroscience will help us in some way. Who knows? But Derek does come up with new problems. So for that reason alone, he's worthy of being in the philosophical pantheon. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned natural sciences because my understanding about the kind of decline of popularity or status of philosophy is that it's been overtaken by the sciences, that originally philosophy and science and religion, for that matter, were all one thing. They weren't easily made distinct. And that ever since science has become distinct from philosophy, its, its prestige has grown maybe at philosophy's expense. I think if you look at the history of philosophy, what tends to happen is that once it has it starts with a very expansive definition and then once an area becomes empirical it then it's shaved off from philosophy and philosophy is, is left with the uh, non-empirical questions which might be metaphysical questions or maybe may yeah maybe questions about consciousness or so on which don't necessarily have an answer in the natural sciences there's there was you mentioned a previous book i wrote which was called the murder of professor slick that was about a group called the vienna circle and they were very interested in science they were all scientifically trained they many of them knew einstein they had very close links with scientists and they were interested in the question about what is science what can philosophy contribute to science and often in in all these disciplines including science, philosophy is the kind of bedrock of them. So what counts as science is a philosophical question. It's not a scientific question. And philosophers have been very useful in that area. And a a philosopher like Karl Popper, for example, I think is held in very high regard by lots of scientists to this day and trying to work out what scientists are trying to do. And Popper comes up with the falsifiability criteria that a scientific hypothesis or scientific theory has to be in theory falsifiable you have to be able to show that it's false and that's what distinguishes it from let's say i don't know astrology for example so working out the demarcation of science and what's different between science and some of the other disciplines is philosophy so i think philosophy can help in all in every discipline actually there's almost always philosophical questions at the substrata of every other discipline yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. It's, it's I think, really important to, to recognize that, that even science has assumptions that are not necessarily scientific in and of themselves. You have to start somewhere. And so philosophy can examine that. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of philosophical questions to do with science. And famously, Einstein says he would never have made his breakthroughs unless he'd read David Hume. So lots of philosophers have been very useful 
to lots of scientists. And of course, there's sometimes a very direct connection between philosophy and science. So philosophers have been involved in the formulation of and the expansion of sort of logic, people like Bertrand Russell and others. And that in turn has been very helpful in many different areas, including, for example, the development of the calculator and the computer and so on. So there's very direct ways in which philosophers and logicians have helped, and they're very important indirect ways in which they've helped science. So speaking of assumptions, you mentioned this more than once in your book, that Parfit thought that moral relativism essentially collapsed into nihilism. If your moral truth conflicted with but was no less valid than my moral truth, this would show that ultimately nothing mattered. And he was, I think you attribute his interest in the subject and his drive and his relentless, really relentless drive to that assumption that somehow a civilization would collapse, morally speaking, if there weren't some way to ground morality in something other than religion. Yeah, so it's an empirical question about whether it would actually collapse. Parfit thought that his life had the sense that if morality wasn't objective, his life was meaningless and he felt that all our lives would be meaningless. Whether or not we believe that or not, he thought they would be meaningless. So he writes two books in his lifetime. He writes a book called Reasons and Persons, which comes out in 1984, and I think is probably the more important of his two books. And then he writes another book called On What Matters, which comes out in 2011. Two volumes come out that year, and then another volume comes out posthumously in 2017. And that's an enormous book, and that's the book you're referring to there, where he's talking about whether morality is objective. And that's the book that the last 25 years of his life, or 20 years of his life, is basically devoted to. And he gives up almost every aspect of his life, all his other interests, to try and get an answer to the question or trying to demonstrate that morality is indeed objective. And in a sense, I think he's right about the question about relativity is if in Mexico you believe one thing and in the UK we believe something else and there's no kind of standard way of ju judging between us, I think he's right that. Our, our natural intuitions about morality seem not seem to be firmer than that. We don't want to say it's no it's no good you saying oh that's how we do it and us saying that's how that's how we do it. That's a question of etiquette. If you hold your fork on the left and we hold the fork on the right, that's absolutely fine. There are certain practices which we can accept are relative. But if you say it's okay to have female genital mutilation and we say it's not, we think there's a right answer to that, and we don't really want. I think most of us don't want to accept a relativist approach to morality. We want to think that there's a sort of deeper fact of the matter, that one of us in that situation is right and one of us is wrong. Yeah, there's also a second assumption, which is not just parfits, that there's a distinction between is and ought. And is would be the scientific set of facts that we discover about the world. And ought is what we ought to do. And it's very hard to go from is to ought that you, can you really look to science for instance to learn what to do or is that outside the realm of science and i i think that there is a burgeoning field of trying to ground morality in biology that there's something about our nature our biological nature that at least makes us tend toward wanting certain kinds of rules about behavior and about how we treat each other but that's not really dealt with in, in his work and I think. No, but I think that's a deeply flawed approach. It's very interesting to discover what human beings want, what we desire, and there are lots of interesting questions about why we've evolved in the way that we have, 
and what comes fairly naturally to most of us? That's a very interesting question that involves all sorts of disciplines, including biology and neuroscience and a whole bunch of other disciplines. That's very interesting. But that doesn't tell us how we should behave, what we should do morally. That is indeed a separate question. And it may well be that we've evolved to be certain kinds of creatures who do terrible things to strangers or to people. We can be very brutal and we can behave very badly. And that may indeed be extremely natural to us. And that may be an evolutionary hangover. But that doesn't mean to say that that's because that's the way we are. That's the way we should be. There's a further question about should we use reason to overcome our natural inclinations? So I think there's definitely a role in science to work out what makes us feel fulfilled, what brings us happiness and so on. But that doesn't answer the question about what we should do. So you write that Parfit had was not exactly a brief writer. He, his books tended to expand and expand because of his perfectionism, and he just could not seem to finish. And finally, with his first book, he was under tremendous pressure to do so in order to retain his, his standing at All Souls College. But he did have one very pithy summary of how secular ethics developed. There's just four steps. One, forbidden by God. Two, forbidden by God, therefore wrong. Three, wrong, therefore forbidden by God. And four, wrong. That's a very beautiful summary. And what you have to understand about Derek is that his parents and all four of his grandparents were missionaries. And he was born in China because his parents were there doing missionary work. They were doctors at that stage, but they were working for a missionary organization. And they become disillusioned with religion and abandon their Christian faith. He, very briefly, as a young boy, is very religious. And then aged, I think, about seven, he abandons religion, partly because of what is now known as the problem of evil, that he couldn't make any sense of an all-powerful, all-good God who would allow so much suffering to exist in the world. So he was a secular thinker, and he believed that, correctly, that up until that moment, most philosophy had been infused with a kind of religious spirit, because, of course, most people throughout history had been religious, and that we were at a new dawn, and we were starting out basically creating a new field, and his job was to create a secular ethics. And that's why number four on the list that you read out, God has disappeared, as it were. And we've come to a kind of secular understanding of what right and wrong is, which doesn't have as any part of its explanation because God says it's... Yeah, and he. it sounds, at least from what you write in your book, that he doesn't try to rework his conception of God. He, I think he assumes that God is perfect and all-powerful, and that if God is God, then Sorry, then, then, then he, God would be good, and God would be kind, and God would be all-benevolent. Correct. So in, in the major tra- tra- religious traditions, that is our God. Our God is all-powerful, and our God is all-good. And then the question is, how come there were earthquakes, and how come there were kids dying of cancer, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? How come there was the Holocaust? This seems to make no sense if there's a God. So... You can go down the sort of path it route and to say, and say, uh, I don't 
believe in a god, you can go down a sort of Leibniz route, which I think is very unconvincing, and say you need some suffering because if there was no suffering, there would be no possibility to be good. So you have to have some bad for us to be able to exhibit our goodness. And I think that's a deeply implausible way of tackling the problem because even if it was the case, you had to have a kind of a small amount of badness. Surely you don't need the scale of terribleness <laughs> that exists in the world. Did 6 million or 11 million people in the, in, in the Holocaust died, 6 million Jews? What was wrong with 5,500,000? Wouldn't that have been enough? So I find that a deeply unconvincing argument. But another way to go is the one you've just hinted at. Another way to go is to say, there is a God, but God is not all powerful. Or there is a God, but God's not all good. God, maybe God enjoys the suffering. That's seen as totally blasphemous, of course, but at least that would make sense of the evidence that we have before our eyes. But he didn't go in that direction. He just basically, he went secular. So let's shift gears just a little bit and talk more about Parfit as a person. Your biography entices the reader to get into his shoes, so to speak, into the shoes of the protagonist of the story. On the other hand, a biography of Parfit in particular continually discourages us from such imaginings. What is it about Parfit that makes him seem so different from the rest of us, both intellectually and emotionally? Or as I like to say, what makes him uniquer than most? <laughs> it was definitely uniquer than most. And th there was a funny review of the book. And I think it came out in the Times Literary Supplement. And it said, as I've explained to your listeners, De Derek spends all his life basically at prep school and university and then at, at Oxford. And it doesn't look like an eventful life. And the reviewer said, why did, the, why did Edmonds write this book? Was it written for a bet? The reviewer asks, before going on to say very nice things about the book. So from one perspective, this is very unpromising material for a biography because he doesn't have a particularly scintillating existence. He doesn't go to war. He's not an astronaut. He doesn't go to the moon. He's not faced with terrible moral dilemmas or not many in any case an unusual unusually few number i would say but he's a very interesting character and he's a very odd man and he gets odder and odder in a way the older he gets and you know, i mentioned also that at school and university when he gets to university he's a historian and he has lots of interests he does lots of things and he he has a fairly kind of normal undergraduate existence at least that's what it seems like from the outside he's involved in debating and student journalism and then he slowly becomes more and more obsessed with philosophy and so by the end he's doing almost nothing but philosophy and he takes extraordinary efforts to save time so that he's got more time for philosophy he wants to save every minute and every second that he can so that he can devote it to the hard questions of philosophy. And that means that he wears exactly the same clothes every day, not exactly the same shirt, but he has a whole set of white shirts and a whole set of red ties and a whole set of grey trousers. So he didn't need to think about what to wear because having to think about what to wear would slow him down. He basically ate the same food every day, so he didn't have to think about what to eat. He behaves in a how did you put it? More unique than most people. <laughs> it was unique. He was, he was definitely uniquer than most. Yeah. And also just in terms of his character, you quote a colleague at, of his at All Souls, Richard Jenkins, reached a conclusion. 
He was, I think, both entirely selfish and entirely benevolent, an unusual combination. A former All Souls fellow, Hannah Pickard, described him as very warm and cold at the same time, or it seemed to me from everything he wrote that he was both empathic yet socially oblivious. Really odd combinations. Okay. Of yeah, so let me try and make sense of those apparently two conflicting attributes. It sounds like you're descri- one is describing him as a round square, two totally exactly. incompatible. But let me try and make sense of those two characteristics. So totally benevolent and totally selfish. So in one sense, he was totally benevolent. So if you were a student and you went to Derek and said, I've got a philosophical problem, or I've written a philosophical essay, Derek was incredibly generous with his time. And there are stories about one person who's now a well-known philosopher having a tutorial with Derek that lasted 14 hours. And with the occasional toilet stop, I think they may have stopped for a snack, but basically it was a 14-hour tutorial. So he could be incredibly generous with his time and with his brain, as it were. So I've got lots of his private letters and his correspondence. I I haven't found a single occasion where he's rude or unpleasant about anybody else in his life. So ordinary human beings spend a lot of our time gossiping and sometimes being a bit bitchy about other people, denigrating other people. I haven't found a single, even when he was a young boy, when I think it comes quite naturally to young boys, they, they gang up against each other and so on. I haven't found a single reference where he's unpleasant or nasty to anybody else, not a single time throughout his life. Now, so that's the benevolent bit. The selfish bit was that because he became so preoccupied with some very deep philosophical questions, he wouldn't give any time towards the end of his life to anybody if it wasn't about philosophy. So, for example, if a friend was getting married and invited Derek to the wedding, Derek would say, sorry, I'm too busy. And that story I've re- repeated a couple of times to others, but it, it, it's a very sad story, is a, of a, a friend of his who was an ex-girlfriend and she's got cancer. She hasn't got very long to live. And there's another friend who's in America who's in all souls and they get in touch with Derek and they say, Derek, they were all old friends together from years back. They said, Derek, let's get to have let's get together and have a meal. And Derek says, sorry, I don't have time. And this person who related the story to me said, Derek at the time was writing this huge book on what matters. And he wanted to shake Derek and say, Derek, don't you realize this is what matters? But to Derek, what mattered was the philosophy and what didn't matter or didn't matter sufficiently was paying close attention to his loved ones and fulfilling the obligations that most of us believe that we have. Yeah, and his wife said that she did all the accommodating in their relationship. Yeah, yeah. So his wife, Janet Radcliffe Richards, who was my PhD supervisor, she, I think, was very puzzled by Derek, took a long time to sort him out, to work him out. And 
I think they had some tough times and she did have to make all the compromises, I think. I think Derek, he didn't want to hurt anybody. He didn't want, he wasn't malevolent. He would have... Right, not by commission, but maybe... By omission. He did hurt people. He definitely hurt people. But it wasn't intentional. And I think he would have been mortified to know that he'd upset people. But he had, a, as I say, a very weak understanding of how he should behave, what his normal obligations to those closest to him ought to be, or rather what the obligations that most of us believe that we have to our nearest and dearest, what they should be. He didn't, he didn't share that sense. And he also didn't share social conventions. There's one rather startling story that he was at a seminar and it was warm in the room. And so he dropped his trousers to his ankles and continued to teach as if nothing had happened. <laughs> yeah, so that so again, one needs to make clear there was nothing perverted or predatory about that. So what happened was that he was in a seminar room in Rutgers. He would used to go to American universities every year to teach, and there were three in particular he would go to: New York University, Harvard, and Rutgers. And on this particular occasion, he was in Rutgers in New Jersey, and I think the air conditioning had failed in the seminar room, and it was just before the seminar had begun, and he was chatting to somebody and they, the person was complaining about the heat and then the person looked over and Derek had dropped his trousers. Now, to Derek, that must have seemed the most logical thing to do because if you're hot and the air conditioning has failed, drop your trousers or take off your shirt to cool down. It's the most logical thing to do. Why wouldn't you do that? So that is indeed what he did. He had a odd relationship, I would say, with his body. So he wasn't really aware of his body. He didn't take much delight in the pleasures of the body, I would say. So he wasn't, at least by the end of his life, very interested in food or drinking fine wine. He wasn't aware of the impact his body had on other people. So sometimes he would sit very close to people and sometimes make people uncomfortable because he didn't understand that they needed more personal space. And again, it wasn't deliberate or there was nothing sexual or perverted about it. I think he just didn't have those intuitions that most people have about the space that surrounds one's body. I guess you could say he would have been comfortable being a brain in a vat. Yeah. He didn't really. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have been comfortable being a brain in a vat. If the brain could survive in the vat, I think he would have been happy. And indeed, insofar as he fed himself and he exercised and he showered and all those kind of things, he basically did it to keep the vehicle going. It was like he needed to keep the vehicle running well so that the brain could function. Yeah. A recurring theme in your book is Parfit's utter genius, his verbal precocity, his, the incisiveness of his insights, the speed of his intellectual processing, and his maddeningly intense perfectionism. You also talk about his fascination with photography and his just incredible obsessive, obsessiveness about the details of photography and getting a picture just exactly right and taking as much time as it needed, even if it took days, weeks, probably years for the same photograph. And you mentioned that he, he had a condition, a neurological condition called aphantasia, the inability to have any kind of visual memory. Yeah, it's visual imagery, I think. 
Yeah, of, yeah, visual yeah. imagery and yeah. memory, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, as a retired psychologist, I, I did some hypnosis, and every so often I would have a patient who had no capacity for visual imagery, which made hypnosis more oh, difficult. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So I think they think, I spoke to the leading expert on this who's at Exeter University, and I think he believes that it affects about 2% of people. And it never occurred to me because I have no problem at all conjuring up visual images. And it's linked apparently to a whole set of other conditions, sometimes the ability not to better read faces, for example. And I think it's also linked maybe to a lack of interest in one's own biography. So I think Parfit was completely uninterested in his own biographical details. And that comes up occasionally and i think for example he would i think he would have been uninterested in my book because he wouldn't he wouldn't really care about what he was like as a youngster that wasn't what turned him on so it may have been linked to his photographic obsession which you talk about so he was given a camera when he was a boy and then when he's a grown up he develops this obsession and he goes to the same two cities every year he goes to venice and he goes to what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and he would photograph the same buildings every single year. And the other city he would photograph was Oxford, because Oxford is as beautiful as those. They were all three beautiful cities, but Oxford, of course, he didn't need to travel. And he would spend much of his disposable income in the days before Photoshop trying to perfect these images using professional, extremely expensive developers. And he would send the photographs back and forth until he achieved the perfection he was looking for. One of the interesting contradictions in Parfit's life and behavior was that his feedback to students was astonishingly swift. He would reply to people, to a student's paper and with copious notes, almost instantly, it seemed. You thought that maybe he had a cadre of elves, a little Parfit's working on these things. And yet his own work, his own work took so long to produce because of his perfectionism. Correct. So but, interesting contradiction. Yeah, so both those are true. There are lots and lots of stories of students who present him with work. And on one occasion, somebody was telling me that they'd worked really hard on this paper. They gave it to Derek on a Friday night. I think they were looking forward to having the weekend off. And then they get back to their apartment and by the time they got back to their apartment there's an email from Derek with notes that are twice as long as the paper and that that story is repeated time after time with many different students he also sent all his work off to many philosophers he wasn't interested in talking to them about their children or where they went on holiday or their really their career prospects but he was interested in hearing from other philosophers about philosophy and so he would send drafts of his work all around the world and they would send back notes partly because i think they felt a kind of responsibility obviously he was an interesting philosopher and they wanted to be involved in his work but also i think they felt a kind of reciprocal responsibility because he commented almost in, certainly on their work so they would respond and so he was dealing with literally hundreds of philosophers around the world who would be sending objections and to each objection, he felt he had to respond. And that's one of the reasons why, A, it takes so long to produce the second book on what matters, but B, 
why the book turns out to be so long, because he wants to convince everybody that he's right. And to do that, he has to, he believes, he was, I think he was making a, an aesthetic and philosophical kind of error here. He believes that he needs to respond to every single objection and that the book ends up being longer and longer. And he anticipates every objection that the reader might have because so many objections have been put to him. So the book gets longer and longer and the publication date gets delayed and delayed. I'm sure the publisher was not exactly happy with that kind of scenario. No, they were remark- remarkably tolerant. It may have been due to the fact that they knew that the problems would only just begin once the manuscript had arrived, because it was one thing for Derek to be late. Once the manuscript had arrived, then Derek's demands would begin. And these demands were just excruciatingly painful for his publishers, because he was very particular about everything, including the spaces between the words on the text. So he would sometimes demand that there were two words that were too close together in the text and the space needed to be expanded. And then he was very particular about the cover and the colours of the cover. So he almost literally drove his publishers bonkers. So the fact they had to wait a bit longer for the manuscript probably was no bad thing from their point of view. Yeah, and it's later in the book you speculate about whether Parfit maybe had some kind of autism spectrum disorder, Asperger's. I have to say, as a retired psychologist, I've never been that comfortable with diagnosis, even though I had to make them all the time because it's so reductionistic. And Parfit was such an unusual person, you would want to not just reduce him to a diagnosis. But there were certainly aspects of his behavior that seems, at least, if not autism spectrum, neuroatypical, as they say these days. I I was very tentative about a diagnosis, precisely for the reasons that you say, and also because I'm not an expert. I spoke to various experts about autism, but I, I was very cautious about doing that. It's interesting that Parfit himself, I uncovered some documentation where he speculates himself that he's autistic and I've got at least two or three letters where he writes to people and he says I think that perhaps I am autistic which explains x y or z so it's not a diagnosis just from the outside it was a kind of internal diagnosis as well and of course you might have tendencies in that direction but also the environment has a role to play as well and he lived such an incredibly unusual external life he was taken care of to such an extent he didn't have to cope. He didn't have to learn to cope. It's almost like a weird variant on a feral child, (laughs) someone who's brought up by wolves, in his case, brought up by an institutional life. Right. So once he's in an institution, basically he spends all his life in institutions until he eventually retires and he has to live in his own home. Basically, the college is taking care of him and there are meals there and he doesn't, he doesn't, the cleaners are not allowed into his house, into his rooms, actually, because he gets up too late because he's an insomniac and he can only get to sleep every night with this extraordinary cocktail of pills and vodka but he doesn't get to sleep till very late and he doesn't wake up until very late so the cleaners are not allowed in and in any case i think they wouldn't have wanted to enter his room because they were were, his rooms were so disgusting they were so messy and full of all sorts of dental floss and paper and all sorts of things but he's very institutionalized and To your point about the link between that and autism, I think a case can be made for arguing that 
these institutions allowed him to be that sort of person. He was allowed to be obsessive about philosophy and to have be so single-minded because he didn't have to worry about all these other aspects of life that most of us do have to worry about. So I'm wondering if with the remaining time, if we can just get a flavor for his thought process and his philosophical output. And so one example would be that he thought about personhood, personal identity, and he did thought experiments. There was one that you cited that seemed awfully similar to a Star Trek episode that I watched where Commander Riker is supposed to be beamed up from a particular research station and unbeknownst to the Enterprise, the image split and one image of him stayed on the research planet and the other one went up to the Enterprise and he thereafter had two different persons that started out as the same person and one with different life courses because one of them stayed on the research station and one of the other one was traveling around the universe and they eventually meet up again. And that's actually from Parfit. Those ideas were mentioned by Parfit long before even Star Trek was uh, the first series had ever started. So I'm not sure about the chronology, but definitely... Parfitian dilemmas crop up in Star Trek. I'm not sure whether he'd ever seen Star Trek himself, but yes, he imagines as one of his thought experiments these transportation, these transporters, teletransporters, which as take a copy of all your molecules and beam you up to to Mars. And he has various variations of that experiment. He wonders at one stage if you imagine that your original stays on Earth and your copy is on Mars, but then you're told that the original um, is about the process has caused some kind of fatal event in the original and that you've got half an hour to live, but that your copy will continue to persist in Mars. And Derek asks one to speculate how upset one should be about this. And it's a very complicated position. I, th I think probably isn't time to talk too much about it, but his basic view is that what we should care about is what he calls psychological continuity. So as long as our memories or variations of our memories are out there, we're made up of our personality, our dispositions, our memories. That's what matters. It's not the physical stuff that matters. It's the psychological continuity that matters. And that's what we should care about when we're wondering about what is important in survival. And another example of that would be present self and future self. If the future self, let's say, winds up having Alzheimer's or some other kind of serious dementia, where that memory link is severed, is it still the same person or is it a different person? And this comes up with ethical dilemmas about, for instance, you have a living will and you say, well, if I reach a certain level of dementia, then I want to be given assisted suicide or maybe more than assisted suicide, maybe even euthanasia. But then by the time you get there, wait a second, that person can't give consent anymore. Is it the same person? Can the earlier self give consent for the later self? So these right. kind of so dilemmas. Correct. So Parfit's view is that there's no essence of us. So if you're a religious believer, you believe in the soul. What makes me the same person over time? I've got the same soul. Parfit, a secular thinker, doesn't believe in the soul. And he thinks we have no essence. There isn't a single thing that makes me. I'm just constituted by my body and my mind. And... One way to think about that is to think that our future selves are just slightly different versions of our current selves. And if you take that view, then exactly as you say, it's not clear that the living will has as much power as we believed it does. We make living wills saying, this is how I want to be treated. 
But if it, when it comes to it in 30 years' time, my future self, there's no essence of me. My future self is, is a slightly different version of my current me. It's not clear how much power that document should have that I wrote 30 years ago. So it has all sorts of implications like that. It has implications for how we should regard past crimes. Suppose somebody committed a crime 30 years ago that they've completely forgotten about. Should we hold them responsible for that crime? It has implications for whether one should save for one's pension. If in the future it's going to be a slightly different version of myself, it's not going to be exactly me. So it has all sorts of implications, these views one has about personal identity. It's not just a philosophical speculation. It might affect the way one runs one's life. And, and as you mentioned earlier in the interview, he also had a lot of concern about future people, that for him, future people were as real to him compared to present people as people who live far away are just as real as people who live close, that if you could save a life, you should save a life regardless of how far away or in space or time. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine that there's somebody in Mexico and somebody in the UK and you can only say one you can only save one life. It seems irrelevant whether that person is in Mexico or in the UK, other things being equal. There's one life is threatened and that's equally bad, all else being equal. So Parfit has the same view about present people and future people. So just as geography makes no difference. So temporality makes no difference. And his simple thought experiment with that is he imagines that you're in a wood and you leave a piece of broken glass in the wood and somebody steps on that. A little child walks in the wood tomorrow and steps on that broken glass and injures herself. So that's obviously a bad thing. But now imagine that the broken glass is buried under some leaves and nobody steps on it for a hundred years. And in a hundred years, a child comes along and steps on that piece of broken glass. That child is not alive when you leave that piece of broken glass. But so what? So what? What's the difference between a child in a hundred years stepping on a piece of broken glass and a child tomorrow stepping on a broken glass? It still has the same amount of pain. It still leads to bleeding and so on. It's no different. And so that is his basic intuition. But he comes up with a series of, describing the book, these brilliant and very interesting puzzles and conundrums about future people and the obligations to them and how many people we want, what's the ideal population size, all these kind of questions which nobody had ever thought about before. And there is now a very thriving subgenre of moral philosophy that basically focuses on these questions of future people. And they all come back to Derek Parfit. Parfit invented all these puzzles and all these problems. He's the template. And all these other philosophers now thinking about these puzzles and problems about Derek, about future people, owe these puzzles and problems to Derek. Yeah, so we probably won't have time to like really flesh these out, but thought he reconciled the three major approaches to secular ethics, the Kantian categorical imperative, the consequentialism or utilitarianism of J Jeremy Bentham and J.S. Mill and contractionalism of John Rawls. And he somehow thought that he could kind of tease out the most important aspects of each of those theories and make them compatible in ways that they weren't before. I don't know if you wanted to say just a real brief, brief yeah, insight very, about very, that. Very briefly, that's one of his two major projects in the second book on what matters. 
And before On What Matters is called On What Matters, it's called Climbing the Mountain. That's his provisional title. And his metaphor is that the contractualists and the Kantians and the Utilitarians or consequentialists, all these different branches of moral philosophy are climbing the mountain from different sides, from different slopes. And they reach the summit together at the same time. And they realize they have the same views from the top of the summit. They realize they've basically come to the same conclusions, but just from different sides. And so that was, as I say, one of his two major projects was to show that all these different disciplines that we think are very different, in fact, have much more in common than we've hitherto believed. Yeah, I, I would think that in the field of ethics, this would be somehow analogous to the quest of modern physics to reconcile the four major forces into a unified field theory, that no one's done it yet, but he thought that he did it. <laughs> right, or maybe in, psych- maybe in psychoanalyst, psychoanalytic tradition, thinking that Jung and Freud and Adler were all coming to the same conclusions or something like that, yes. Okay, so just with the final thought here, one of Parfit's lasting legacies is in the effective altruism movement, which some of our listeners may have heard of, that, you know, how to do good the best you can and how to make your altruism effective in in the world. And you you describe that Peter Singer is the father of that movement, but if he's the father, then Derek Parfit was the grandfather. Yeah. So I think one thing that Derek does is because he stresses the importance of future people, they become interested not just in helping people in poverty on the other side of the world, but also in questions to do with existential risk, questions about threats to the whole of the human race, like artificial intelligence or like pandemics or like climate change. And so he pushes or helps push, I think, the effective altruism movement in a particular direction. And now a lot of the focus of, on effective altruism has to do with not just helping people in dire need, but also thinking about how we can make sure that the human species continues to survive. And that's a very Parfitian thought, really. And that, I think at least partially inspired by Parfit. Okay. On that note, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. David Edmonds, a British philosopher and a distinguished research fellow at Oxford University's Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics, the co-host of the widely acclaimed Philosophy Bites podcast, and co-author of the international bestseller Wittgenstein's Poker. We're, today we spoke about his recent book, Parfit, a philosopher and his mission to save morality. So thank you so much, David, for coming on to Delving In. Thanks, Stuart. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.